Hi there. It's really, really good to see you, even though it's pitch black and I can't see any of you. But it really is good to be back, and it's good to see you. I wanted to ask you a question. Do we have any Disney fans uh, around? Yeah. I'm a big fan of Disney as well. Um, my wife and I, we love going to Disney. We love taking our kids there. We go there a couple times a year. Um, but the last time we were there was in April. And um, we had just left our house. And if you have kids, you know that like when you, when you go anywhere with your kids for more than like a weekend, you've got to pr- practically take everything you own. Uh, I mean, I left like the washer and dryer, and that was it. I mean, everything else was stuffed into our car. And uh, so we left. We got on I-75. And we hadn't been driving no more than 10 minutes. And my daughter asks me, she says, "Uh, Papi? And I said, yes. She says, are we there yet? And I said, "Uh, Mia, no. I mean, we're not even in Pembroke Pines yet, uh, much less, um, you know, (laughs) Disney World. And and so, you know, then like 10 minutes later, she asked, she says, Papi, are we there yet? And I said, yes, we are. How do you like Disney World? And she says, oh, this isn't Disney World. This is, uh, you know, this is the car. And I said, yeah, that's because we're... Not there yet. So, you know, A, don't ask this question again until you see cartoon characters talking. Um, And B, I said, you know, what happens is you're diminishing the fun that we have on the road. I said, because the vacation started the minute that we pulled out of the driveway. So let's just enjoy the whole vacation and not get caught up in if we're there or not. Let's just have fun. okay? Okay, Poppy. Yes. Are we there yet? You know, so, you know, and, and, and I don't know what it is, but we just have this tendency to think that the destination is where the fun is. And uh, instead of realizing that it, it's, it's in, in the journey, it's in the walk where we learn and where we grow. But we do this in life. You know, we're always trying to figure out how to get there, you know, wherever there is. So if you're single, life is really going to get good when you get married. And then you get married and you realize, like, well, that ain't what I thought it was going to be. And so you say, well, you know, maybe it's, it's when we have kids, that's when it's really going to get good. So then... You have kids, but the kids are babies. And you say, well, man, it's, it's okay. But, man, when the kids are a little bit older and you can experience more with them, that's when it's going to get really good. And then, you, you know, you're like, and you know, when they grow up, it's going to be better. And then you get like, you know, they become teenagers and you think they're married. You're married. You've got teenagers in your house. And it's like, well, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Uh, and you say, well, when is it going to be great? Maybe when they get my teenagers not just grow up, but when they get out, that's when it's going to be better. Um, that, you know, and I'm telling you that we do this. We did this. Um, we did this when we were kids. Um, when you were four years old, three or four years old, all you did was watch TV and play. All right. That's all you did. Um, and uh, like right now, my daughter is like talking about going to school. She's so excited. So we're looking at preschools and uh, some things like that. And it's being it's may, way more traumatic for me uh, than it has been for anybody else. Like my my wife, like thinks about this logically, like this is the next step for her. And I, I'm like the more hysterical one uh, that's like kind of freaking out that she's going to school already. But um, but when you're four years old, you know, you're just like, you know, watching TV for a living. And uh, you but you wish you could go to school then. You go to elementary school and you're like, well, no, middle school is where it's at. Then in middle school, you're like, no, high school is where it's at. In high school, you're like, no, college is where it's at. Then when you're in college, you're like, I am, I've spent my whole life in school. I didn't want to get a job so I don't have to live off ramen noodles my whole life. And then after you're in college, you know, you start working and you start working for a while. And what's most people over 50 talking about? They're thinking about retiring. Why? So you can go back to watching TV all day like you did when you were four. I mean, it's just like it's this whole circle of life. You know, and I'm telling you, it, it happens in every year of life and it happens spiritually. It happens when we're walking with God and we think that it's the next thing that's going to get that's going to be. Well, I've been, I've been I'm a Christian, but when I've been a Christian for a year or when I've actually read through the Bible all the way or after I take this class, everything is about getting there. And sometimes we can get so focused on getting there that we miss what God is doing here, what God is doing now. And, and I want to tell you that it's in the spirit of this idea is where the seismic shift takes place in, in our lives and where the seismic shift takes place in the book of Ephesians. Um, if you, we've been studying the book of Ephesians now for about a month or so. And the first three chapters that we looked at were all this like these great grandiose truths about how God has worked in our lives, how God is working in our lives and how God will work in our lives. We read about all that we have in Christ, right? The spiritual blessings, the access to God, uh, how God's grace has worked in our lives. But sometimes it can cause us to think, as we talk about eternity and all of that, that all this is going to happen, but it's not going to happen now. 
So we're waiting for there. And, and yet here's what can happen to us sometimes is that even though it's about what's happening there, we forget about what's happening here. And where the shift takes place is that Paul, the apostle, as, as he's writing Ephesians, turns his attention not from the, hey, well, here's what's hap- going to happen then, to how do we take these theological truths and transfer them to what's happening now? To, what does it mean to us now? Instead of stopping and asking, are we there yet, to realize that we're here. That there's a work that God wants to do in us right now at this very moment. That He wants to take us to a higher place. That a place that where every, everything that we do matters. The way we parent our kids speaks of our spiritual maturity. The way that we uh, operate as husband and wife speaks to, to our spiritual maturity. That our words, our deeds, our work, our prayer, our decisions, that all of it is speaking to our maturity in Christ or our immaturity in Christ. And that's why this section in Ephesians, and if you have your Bible, open it to Ephesians chapter 4. It's where we're going to start. But this whole section in Ephesians 4 begins with this simple word. He says, I, therefore. And when I was getting my theology degree, my, uh, one of my professors used to say, uh, when you see a therefore in the Bible, find out what it's there for. And I remember thinking when I first heard that, like, I paid good money to hear that. Um, and yet what happened was, is, is that he was right. This, therefore, ties the entire book of Ephesians together. It takes these first three chapters, these grandiose ideas, and brings them down to the here and now. And he says, basically, in light of everything you've read, when we read at the end of chapter 3, last week, Pastor Mark taught, and he taught us um, that amazing passage in Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be glory in the church both now and forever and ever. Amen. And, and I mean, this great and glorious idea that God is this God who's able to do so much for us, who's done so much in the past, who's doing so much in the present, who will do so much in the future. Now we're able to look at that and say, what does it mean right now? And that's where he begins. You say, look at all these great things in chapter 3. Now we're going to learn how to do it and practice it in daily life. So we're going to begin in chapter 4 in verse 1. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, throughout the rest of this book of Ephesians, it is going to be about the idea of how do we now do what it is that we've learned? How do we actually take all of this and begin walking a certain way? You see, um, my son just turned a year old on Thursday. I think we have a picture of him here. Um, so that, that, that's, uh, that's him, my son Alexander. And uh, he just turned one. We had a big party for him on Saturday. And uh, the funny thing is that the question that I get about him all the time, and by the way, we probably want to take that off because my son's cuteness has like a gravitational pull. And you will not listen to anything that I say. You'll just be like, how can a kid be that cute uh, and still look so much like his dad? Um, and so, uh, but what happens is, is that the question that we get about him all the time, because he just turned one, is, uh, is he walking? Uh, and and by, by the way, he's not walking yet, which is just fine with me because I want to keep him as a baby as long as possible. Uh, because you know that if, if you have kids, you know this, that everything begins to change once they start walking. Like you've got to set up all kinds of new security systems in your house. Like, uh, you know, like one of the major security things in our house now is, you know, you, like there's the cabinets that open on the bottom. And if you have kids, you know that what you do is you take like a rubber band. Like, this is the tight security we have in our house. Like, little rubber bands all around the house to keep them from opening stuff. Because the other day, um, we were, I walked into the kitchen, and I heard, like, this banging noise. He had opened up one of the cabinets on the bottom, and he just had, like, this pan. He was just smashing it on the ground. And I'm like, that can't be good. You know, it's my powers of discernment. Um, like, that can't be a good thing. So, anyways, but because we recognize that when you start walking, everything changes. The same thing is true in the life of a Christian. That walking with God is the mark 
of maturity. It's the mark of a believer who's serious about his relationship with God, that he's not just saying he loves God in word, but he's walking with God in deed, in action, in step. And so Paul calls the believers here. He says, I, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I'm exhorting you to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. That we've all received a calling from God. And what is that calling? That God chose us to be his child, that he saved us through the work of Jesus on the cross. And that understanding alone should cause us to live and walk a certain way. And so what Paul does is that he lays out five characteristics of a walk that pleases God. Five characteristics of of a person who is serious about their relationship with God. And that's what we're going to look at from these six verses. If you have your notes, I'm going to have you write the first one down. The first one is this. This characteristic is humility. That's what he says in verse 2. He says, He's a, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness. Lowliness is a word um, that, that, that can be as also translated humility. Now, we live in a world where people are constantly trying to make more of themselves, trying to make life about them, puff themselves up. And here's instead what the Bible teaches us is that the quality of someone who walks with God is humility, that they don't make it. Uh, They don't make everything about them. Now, what is humility? Humility is simply this. It's uh, this is my definition. uh, And that is that humility is this knowing who I am in light of who God is. That's it. Real simple that I'm not making more of myself than I should or that I'm making less of myself than I should. But instead that I have a sober estimation of who I am and, and and who it is that God created when he created me or who it is that God created when he created you. The Apostle Paul would say it this way in the book of Romans, chapter 12. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. You see, here's the thing that's interesting. The Romans and the Greeks did not have a word for humility in their language. Instead, what Paul has to do is that he has to take two different Greek words and put them together to create, um, you know, this compound word to, to, to create the idea of which we, we consider uh, humility. And here's why humility is so important is because without humility, you will never obey God. Without humility, you and I will always think that we have a better idea. And instead of saying, well, God wants to do this, well, I'm just going to go ahead and do this because it's what I really want to do. And instead, we will make these decisions in pride rather than walking with God in humility because the only way you can walk with God is to walk with Him in humility. That's why the book of Micah says this. He says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You see, we experience the best life possible when we accept the role that God has given to us and fulfill it with humility and walk with him in humility. That's why John the Baptist, who Jesus said was the greatest man ever, said this in John 3.30. You can just jot the reference down. He said, I must decrease. He, Jesus, must increase. Number one is humility. Number two, he says, with all lowliness and gentleness. Number two is gentleness. Could also be, we could say, is meekness. Now, when I say meekness and gentleness, here's what some translate that as. Meekness, gentleness equals wimpiness. Now, let me explain that because now that's actually, um, it's erroneous and I want to tell you why. Uh, because meekness is a word that literally means power under restraint or power that's under control. Um, the, the, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. My, my brother-in-law has a Mustang that he's like always working on. Um, it can go zero to 60 in like half a second or something. I mean, it's so, this car is just so stinking fast. Um, to the point where now it's not even street legal anymore. He actually has to take it on a track and race it with other people who do this to their cars. Now they have, don't have a car to drive anymore. So, you know, it's just so what do they they take the bus to work so they can drive this car on a track? I don't really understand that. Um, but it's really fast. But he's let he let me drive his Mustang before. And I'm going to tell you, I mean, it's crazy. I mean, it's crazy fast. And it's a weird thing when you have the ability when you're driving down a street and the speed limit is 40 and, you know, just like a little push of, of the gas and you're going 100, you know, and you think like that's that's something. But here's the thing. Um, 
And you know, like, if you just floor this thing, you could be in West Palm Beach in like 10 minutes. You know, it's, it's crazy. But here's the deal. The, the deal is this, is meekness is being able to floor it and go 100, but going 40. It's power, but it's power that's under control. Because here's the thing, power that's out of control doesn't help you. Power that's under control is harnessed and used for something that's good. By the way, those um, when uh, Jesus, the one time that he actually describes himself, he uses this word to describe himself. It's in your notes in Matthew chapter 11. He says, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You see, if you want God to bless you, meekness is what God is looking for. If you say, Bob, I want to be happy, meekness is what God is looking for. That's why Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5 in the Beatitudes, he would say, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Did you notice it doesn't say blessed are the meek, for they will take over the earth or conquer the earth? It says they will inherit the earth. You know what the interesting thing is about inheritance? You don't have to actually do anything to inherit something. It's given to you based on your relationship with this other person. And that's why he says that meekness is so important. Because when you're meek, when you're, you have power, but you're able to control it. You don't have to force things to happen. Instead, God freely gives them to you. Um, when, David, when God had anointed David to be king, um, Samuel came to, the prophet Samuel came to David's house, anointed him as king of Israel. There really was just one problem with that. There already was a king in Israel. So what do you do with that? And then what do you do when the king of Israel finds out that the prophet has anointed you the king of Israel and you're still like king? Well, Saul, who was the king at that time, decided that he was going to make it his personal goal in life to kill David and uh, so he could secure his power. But one day, while he was chasing David, the tables turned. And uh, Saul was tracking David down and they came to an area south of Jerusalem uh, to a place called En Gedi. En Gedi was this place of... Uh, hills, mountains. It was actually. It's a. I've been to Engedi. It's a beautiful area. Streams flowing. Like there's deer. I mean, it's really a beautiful place. And uh, but there's all these caves, all these little places that you can hide in in this in this mountainous area. And um, that's where David and his men were hiding from Saul. And what happened was is that uh, Saul must have eaten like some bad chili or something because the Bible said. I mean, I, I'm serious because the Bible doesn't tell us that. But it tells us that he must have had like, uh, what should we call it, intestinal distress? Um, because the Bible says, this is literal, he went to go relieve himself. And uh, that's what it says. And so, like right in the middle of hunting down David. So he goes into a cave to do, to, you know, relieve himself in a way that you do in 1000 B.C. when there's no restrooms. Um, and so, but he happens to go into the very cave that David and his men are hiding out in. Now, I don't know if you've ever had an experience where you walked into, like, guys, if you ever walked into a restroom, you open up the stall, and there's 50 guys in there, like, hey, what's up? You know, you probably haven't. But this is what happened. He walks in, not even realizing that there's, like, David and all of his men in this cave, like, in the back, and he, you know, I don't know what exactly Saul was doing, you know, gets a newspaper or something, whatever, and starts reading. And then, um, but listen, so here's what happens, is that now, David... This Saul is at the most vulnerable that he is ever going to be. And David is there with his men. And listen to what the men say. This is in your notes. What the men say to David. They say, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of of his robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the Lord's anointed. And with these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And he left the cave and went his way. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute, like, they're, thinking, they're saying, David, why won't you kill this guy? This guy has tried several times to kill you and been unsuccessful. And now, can't you see God's hand in this? Can't you see God's hand in his intestinal distress where he's got to use the restroom and he walks into the very cave where you are? I mean, God is delivering you, him into your hand. Let's just kill him, be king, and it's over. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. 
because he recognizes that if he kills Saul in this manner, he will spend the rest of his life wondering if he became king because he did it or if God actually made him king, and he'll never know. Plus, I'm guessing that you probably don't want to actually tell that story to your kids, right? Like, Daddy, how did you become king? Well, son, Daddy became number one while the other king was going number two. Uh, You know, that's just weird. Um, But listen, that's what meekness is all about. Meekness is all about having the power but being able to control it. It's giving God room to work so that when we experience God's blessing, we recognize that it's Him working in our lives, not us trying to force His hand. That's number two. Number three is this, same thing we see in verse two, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering. Number three is patience. Another characteristic of someone who walks with God. Listen, um, in all my years in ministry and working with people, um, I have found that most of the bad decisions that people make come from a lack of patience. Most, when I look back in my own life, most of the bad decisions that I have made have, had, have come from a lack of patience. Because impatience is the thing that kills the good that God wants to do in our lives. The Bible says in Proverbs 19, it's in your notes, that a man's wisdom gives him patience. A man's wisdom. The mark of a wise person is someone who has patience. The mark of someone who is unwise is the fact that they are impatient. When I was, um, before coming uh, to start Calvary now almost 10 years ago, I used to run a college. And for four or five years, that's what I did was uh, run this college. And um, one uh, for a season of time, there was some renovation. And so we actually had to move our college. And so we were meeting in a building um, where this other company met. And so there, we were kind of sharing some space. And uh, I would walk in every day, and there was this receptionist area, but there was no receptionist. And, um, but there was this awesome leather chair. It was like a high back, like one of these Donald Trump, you know, you're fired, one of those kind of chairs. It was awesome. And I remember every day I would see that, uh, this chair, and I would say, man, I just, I love this chair. A few times I would just sit in it, you know, and like, man, I like this chair. Well, anyway, I talked to the guy who ran the facility, and I said, listen, I see this chair every, every day here. There's no receptionist. There hasn't been one for months. What are the chances of me using this chair, like, forever? You know, me sitting in this, you know, me, me having this chair. And he says, oh, you know, I don't know if it would be that big of a deal. I think it would be fine. Let me just ask somebody, and then we'll see if we can get it for you. So now when he says that, I'm thinking, like, I'm going to have it for you, like, tomorrow. Well, then, like, a week goes by, nothing. Two weeks go by. Three weeks go by. A month goes by. Every day I'm looking at that chair. And I'm like, what is up? And then, like, six weeks, seven weeks go by. Well, it's about two months go by, and I just say, that's it. I'm fed up. I go to office, because mind you, I had this chair that was a total piece of junk. It was crooked. I'm typing like this. I mean, it just didn't make any sense. Um, So I just said, I went to Office Depot. I bought the chair, right? I went during lunch. I bought the chair. I strapped it to the roof of my car. I brought it back to the school, dragged it to my office. True story. I opened the door to my office, and the the chair, leather chair, is behind the desk. And it's like this. You know, I'm pushing the desk, and I'm like, And then at that moment, I hear a door open, and it's the guy walking into, like, the area where our school was, and the college was. And he's like, hey, what are you doing? I'm like, what are you doing? You're not a student here. Get out. Uh, and he's like, uh, no, hey, I just wanted to let you know that I got you the chair. Hey, what's that box? And I'm like, I'm making a homemade bomb. What are you doing? You know, and, uh, and he's like, well, and he's like, he goes, did you buy a chair? No, maybe it's for a friend in the hospital. You know, I mean, I don't know. So he says this, right? And he's like, and he goes, you bought a chair, didn't you? And I'm like, all right, fine. I bought a chair. And he's like, didn't I tell you that I was going to come through, but it was going to take a little bit of time? And I'm like, all right. You know, I was just, I felt like such a doofus, you know? And, uh, and then I'm to the point where, and anyway, he just kind of like left and it was weird and. And then, and then I, I'm telling you a true story. I actually took the chair and I gave it to my assistant. And I'm like, put this in your office. I never want to see it again. And I used the chair that I bought, which wasn't even that good, by the way. And the other chair was awesome. Anyway, the, but here's the point of the matter. Listen, one of the signs that we're walking with God is our ability to wait. 
and our ability to wait on him to do for us the thing that we cannot do for ourselves. One of my favorite verses is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 30 and 31. It says, even the youth shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The end of verse two, he says, with lowliness, gentleness, long suffering and bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. That's number four. This characteristic of someone who walks with God is that they have Love, not just regular love. I'm talking about a supernatural love. You know what the problem is with English is that we've only got one word for love, and that's love. And so we use it in a clumsy kind of way. So we talk about everything. Oh, I love this. I love that. You know, it's like, you know, I love my wife. I love my kids. I love the Red Sox. I love chicken wings. You know what I mean? And I'm talking, so do you love your kids more than you love the Red Sox? Well, yeah, yeah, I do. I do. And, uh, and, and it's like, but you, know, but you would think that all of these things are on par. And the problem is there just isn't, there isn't enough, there, there's not enough language, right? That's why you can tell something about a culture when you know how, how many words they have for a particular thing. Like, you know, you know, like Eskimos, they have like, you know, what is it, 17 or 20-something words just for snow. Why? They just know, it's not just snow to them. It's like, well, there's like all these variations of snow. To us, it's just well, it's not even snow. It's like, what is that? We haven't even heard of it. You know, it's just different shades of hot um, for us. But here's the thing, is that in Greek, there's not just one word for love. There's four different words for love. And they're used differently in different ways throughout the New Testament. There's what's called uh, eros love in the Greek, which is where we get our word erotic. It speaks of like a sexual love or a romantic love. There's the word phileo, where... Uh, we get our English word filet fish um, And, uh, you know, I tell you what, I said this at 10 o'clock in, in, in Miramar, and those guys were totally asleep. They're like, <laughs> it was like a 30-second delay, you know. <laughs> you know, it, it, seriously, it was weird. Um, but, uh, but, but, but a phileo type of love, it's where we got our word philanthropy, or we got the term Philadelphia, which means brotherly love. But it's a brotherly love or a friendship uh, type of love. There's uh, storge is another word that's used for love, which is a natural love, like the kind of love that a parent has for their child. And then there's a term, uh, the word agape, that's used, which is like the highest type of love. It's a, word, it's a word that refers to love that's unconditional, that's sacrificial. That's the, kind, that's the word that Paul uses here. Bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another with an unconditional type of love. That's why Peter would write these words. He would say, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. This is the kind of love that comes from a person who walks with God. Because what happens is the more you walk with God, the more you become like him. Um, we were in Boston for a couple of weeks and I was, took a few days off and then I was doing some teaching while I was up there as well. But one of the things that, that happens is, now I, some of you know I grew up in Boston and uh, I, when I moved here, I was 14, and I had, like, the Bostonian accent. Thankfully, God healed me. And uh, so I, I don't speak like that anymore. Uh, I speak normal. And, uh, and then, but here's the thing, is that my wife, whenever we go to Boston, after a while, she starts picking up, like, the little Boston-isms, you know. So she's talking about Pac and the Cod, have it yet, you know. So she's talking like she's, a, you know, she's, like, just came out of the show, cheers. Um, and so, and that's the, the, so, but what happens is, and then I, you know, she starts talking like that and then I mock her, uh, because it's the way I show love. Um, and so she'll do that and, and you know, and so she says, don't make fun of me, you know, so, but listen, but it's just a matter of proximity. She doesn't do that when she's here or here. Uh, she doesn't do it when she's here. Uh, she'll, she only does it when she's there. Why? Because proximity will do that. You be, what, you know, the characteristics of, of a person will begin to rub off on you. The same thing happens in our relationship with God. The more you walk with God, the more you begin to act like him. That's why when we get to chapter 5, we're going to have a long discussion about this. But he says this. I put it in your notes. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us. And then lastly, number five. Um, he says this in verse 3. He says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Number five is unity. 
um, my daughter Mia has these uh, mega blocks. Are you familiar with what mega blocks are? They're like Legos on steroids. You know, I mean, they're huge. They're huge blocks. So my daughter has like this huge bag of these mega blocks, and uh, they're actually a lot of fun. There's plastic blocks, and we build all kinds of things. We built like a city, and then um, her favorite thing is when her, when I, her and I build like a giant robot um, from uh, the mega blocks. And then, but her new thing is that if she wants to do something um, and she doesn't want her brother to be involved, she'll take out the mega blocks and build a wall. True story. Well, the other day, she like goes, she dumps out the mega blocks in the living room and uh, she says, Xander, you stay over there. And then she built this wall in the middle of our living room. And, uh, and she says, Papi, can you help me? And I said, sure, what do you want to do? She says, help me finish building the wall so Xander can't get over and I said, Mia, this is not Berlin. We're not splitting the city by building a wall here. The, the Iron Curtain has fallen, you know. Uh, Mr. Gorb- anyway, uh, I'm going to start quoting Ronald Reagan. Um, but, uh, and I said, listen, we're not going to build a wall. We're trying to keep our family together, not divide. You know, she didn't get it all. And, uh, but here's the deal, is that, listen, division, division, and those who cause division, listen, that is not God's will. God says that unity is a picture of maturity. Jesus tore down walls. He didn't build up walls to separate people. In your notes, this is an important verse. We, we covered it a couple weeks ago in Ephesians. It says this in, in verse 14. It says, For he himself is our peace, and he has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law and its commandments and regulations. Now, this is a direct reference to a wall that existed in the temple in Jerusalem and that separated Jews and Gentiles because in the temple, everything was about access and separation. Now, let me show you this picture. Oh, it's right here. Um, This is actually a picture of a model uh, in the city of Jerusalem. If you ever come with us the next time we do a tour of Israel, um, one of the things that we do before we go into the city of, uh, of Jerusalem is we go to this area that, that's a model um, of the city. And the cool thing about this is that it's a model of the city circa about 66 A.D. So this is what the temple, it'll be what Jerusalem looked like around the time of Jesus. Um, now this is the temple and how it looked around the time of Jesus. Of course, this is a model of it. And so you have, this is the temple proper. And then you have all these outer buildings of the temple in what is all of this would be what's called the Temple Mount. So if you ever see pictures of Jerusalem with uh, the Dome of the Rock on top, that is on the Temple Mount where the temple of God in Jerusalem once stood. But here's the thing. When we talk about this wall of separation, uh, and I hope you can see this if the pulpit or me are not in your way. So let me stand over here. I think this will help unless you're sitting over here and now I just totally obstructed your view. Um, but here's what, here's what it looks like. You see this wall, this, this, the, the, what looks like a wall right here, and then it comes around all the, way, all the way around here. Now, this is what separated Jews and Gentiles. Now, this outer area all around here, that was what was called the court of the Gentiles. That is, that people who were from other nations should, could come in and worship, but this is as close to the temple, to the temple proper that they could get. Now, if you were a Jew, you could cross into in the inside, and this wall... This wall of separation, uh, once again, if you come with us to Israel in the next couple of years, um, I have a picture of this at home. I should have brought it with me. Um, this picture is of a part of the wall. And it says this in about three different languages. It says, he who is not of Jewish descent who passes beyond this wall does so at the risk or at the forfeit of his own life. You cross the wall, you die. That's just the way it is. Um, so... You could go in here, and then you could actually go into this temple complex and into this area. Now, this area in the middle is what was called the court of the women. Not just because there weren't just women there, but that's as far as women could go. Now, if you were one of the men of Israel, you could actually go beyond this door right here. And just beyond this door, there was what was considered another court, and that was called the court of the men of Israel. Now, this area was where the, the, the guys would come, the, the head of their homes, and they would bring the sacrifices because it was here where the uh, altar was. Now, just beyond the altar in this area right here was what was called the, the court of the priests because that's as far as the priests could go. But then there's this temple 
this building, which is the temple proper. Now, this temple is, um, if you can imagine, a, a, a small building that's about 15 feet wide and 45 feet long. And so you w- open the door and you saw the first, the first area was 15 by 30. Um, and this 15 by 30 room had the menorah. Uh, you know, the, the golden lampstand, it had the table of the showbread, it had several pieces of furniture there. Uh, it had, uh, it, there was this, um, at the end of this, uh, this first room, there was a giant curtain. In front of that curtain, there was what was called the altar of incense. So there was incense burning, there were the menorah, the, the, the lights were, were uh, on, and then there was this showbread, so there was like this freshly baked bread that was, you could smell as you walked in. Now the priest would go in there once a day and maintain all of that. But that's as far as some of them could go. And then the high priest could only go into the one place once a year, and that is what was beyond the veil or beyond that curtain, what was called the Holy of Holies, which was this 15 by 15 square room, which the only thing that was in there was, um, was the Ark of the Covenant and then the mercy seat, which sat on top, which you've ever seen, uh, if you've ever seen uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, then you know what that looks like. Um, and inside of that, there was a couple of, of different items. But here's the thing that happens, is that everything, you know, Judaism and the worship of God at the temple, at that time, everything was built on this separation. Jesus comes along and he says, how about this? How about there's, there's no distinction in Christ between Jews and Gentiles, between men and women, between slaves and free men, that we can all be one. There's this unity in Christ. And that's what the book of Galatians teaches us. It says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, the thing that's important for us to know is this, is that divisive people uh, are not mature. Divisive people are not godly, no matter how much of the Bible they claim to know. You see, they might say that they know quite a bit about the Bible, but here's what the Bible teaches about divisive people, is that they are warped. That they're twisted. That's literally what Paul says in Titus chapter 3. I put it in your notes. He says, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Now, let's talk real practical for a minute. Um, if you're a single adult here, this is what unity and, and why unity is so important, this is why you want to marry someone who is as committed to following God as you are. I'm not just saying, well, you know, I'm a Christian and they're a Christian. I mean, are they as committed to following Jesus as you are? Because sometimes you say, well, I'm dating this person. Oh, are they a Christian? Well, they got mad. I heard them call on Jesus once. I thought that might be something. Uh, well, that, that's, not, that's not quite it. Why? Because the last thing you want to do is begin a relationship from a place of disunity. No, instead you want to begin a place from unity. That's why the Bible says not to be unequally yoked with someone who is not a believer. Couples, that's why you, you, you need to continue building in your marriage relationship so that there isn't division when people start going in two different directions. The book of Amos teaches us, in Amos chapter 3, verse 3, it says, can two people walk together without agreeing on the direction? The answer is no. If you're going east and I'm going west, guess what? We're not going to be able to walk together too far because we're going in different directions. That's why couples that last, they're walking in the same direction. They have similar goals and similar dreams, and they're both seeking to honor God with everything in their lives. In church life, it's why we have membership. Because we want people to understand where it is that we're headed as a church. Because if we're going in one direction and a group of people are going in another direction, it's going to cause a problem. And that's why we do this membership class periodically, because it's, it, we do it to, to let people know what we're all about as a church. And if Calvary is your church home, let me encourage you uh, to sign up for, your mem- for the membership class. It's happening in a few weeks. Uh, you can, uh, you'll see it on the back of your card. You can sign up for it. And by the way, going to the membership class doesn't make you a member. Going to the membership class just tells you who we are as a church, where we've been, who we are, and where it is that we're going. And if this church is your home... I think, you know, it would behoove you to say, hey, I want to know a little bit more about who we are as a church and where it is that we're headed. Now, speaking of unity, let me give you a little bit of uh, what's been happening behind the scenes uh, here, here at Calvary. Um, some of you know that we started meeting here about uh, two years ago. And I'll tell you what, it's gone very well for us here. 
Uh, six months ago, we started our campus in Miramar that has just completely exceeded our expectations. Um, and so even though we're, we're a church that has two locations, we, we're still one body of believers. And uh, just like Paul wrote, you know, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. I mean, we're, we're still one. But here's the thing that's happened for us now as we've been uh, working with the school here that, that we meet in. And that is that the administration of the school has decided that they uh, don't want us to meet here anymore. And uh, what, what that means is, is that, and, and here's, the, here's the problem. The problem is this. And I'm going to give you the problem and I'll give you the solution. The problem is, is that we're too big. Uh, I mean, we've got two services here that are, you know, very well attended. And, um, you know, because you guys keep coming back every week. You, know, you notice that? And then you keep bringing your friends like that old Perk Plus commercial, you know, if you remember that, like they told their friends and their friends told their friends. It's kind of like what's happened here. And um, and I, I say that jokingly, but can I can I I'm, I don't use Perk Plus, but um, I used to. Um, uh, <laughs> and, but here's the thing that happens is that um, I say it jokingly, but um, honestly, what God is doing at Calvary is really not the norm. Uh, the average church in America is 78 people and the average church in America declined by nine percent last year. So that 78 turned into about 70, 69, 70, 71, somewhere around there. Um, at Calvary over the years, we've seen every year 20, 25% growth of people that we reach, people who come to know Jesus, people who get baptized, and, um, and, and we just see God continuing to work. And so as we've looked around and said, well, is there a facility that, that makes sense for us here in the area? I'll be honest, we kept looking for a, another location and have been, had much trouble finding one because we just haven't found one that really makes sense. Uh, so that we don't get into it and say, all right, we're going to start nine services, uh, you know, this Sunday. Um, and so here's the thing that we decided to do after, because here, here, here's what it takes. You know, God asks us to do three things. Ask, seek, and knock. Right? We do those three things according to Matthew 7, and we see what door God opens for us. But we've been doing a lot of asking, a lot of seeking, and a lot of knocking, and we've seen a lot of doors close, and we've seen one door that's been continually open. And we're realizing, like, this is just where God, is, where God is, is moving us, and it just seems to make so much sense. And so what's going to happen is, is um, we're going to meet here, um, obviously, today. We're meeting here next week, which is August 1st. And then our last Sunday to meet here in this facility will be August 8th. And then after that, starting August 15th, we're going to move everything up to our Miramar campus. And um, start, starting on August 15th. Now... Uh, and so the service times are going to change. Um, we'll still have the 10 a.m. service, and so our service times will be 10 a.m. and 11.30 a.m. So those of you that love 12.30, my deepest apologies. Uh, but you may have to invest in an alarm clock. Um, but but here, here's the thing, and here, here's the, the, the serious part. Um, you know, we have a tremendous facility up there in, uh, in Miramar that the, the administration of the school absolutely loves the fact that we're there and is telling us, you guys stay here as long as you want. And um, honestly, here, it's been a challenge for the last year for us to be able to continue to stay here. And so we've just seen this door beginning to close, and we've seen that door just continually just be open even wider. And uh, so it's been, a, it's been a really good thing. Now, here's what it's going to mean. Some of you live in between. You live a little north of here, a little south of there. So it's like five minutes either way. So it's not going to be a big deal. Uh, some, of, some of you live a little further. Maybe you live a little bit south of here. And that means that your drive to church is probably going to increase by 10 minutes or so. Um, now, the thing you've got to know is I do this drive every, every Sunday. I actually live in Miramar, so I do this drive every day. Um, but, but here's the deal is that I teach at 10 o'clock in, in Miramar, and then I, by the time the service ends, there's an 11 o'clock that starts here, and I'm able to make the drive door-to-door in about 10 to 12 minutes. And that's because I'm going the speed limit, all right? Because uh, the last thing you want to do is, uh, Pastor Bob was supposed to teach. What happened? Well, the cop's still writing him the ticket. And so, but we didn't want that. So, um, you know, the facility up there is much nicer. It has a lot more to offer us. And uh, they're really happy that we were there. And this whole situation has shown me something about the wisdom of God in that, you know, we started planning the launch of that campus over a year ago. And we had absolutely no idea that this was going to take place, that we weren't going to be able to meet here. Um, I mean, no idea. And for us to be able to, to have, like, the ideal facility that we started meeting in now six months ago and then to... Um, 
to have been there to make a very simple transition 10 minutes up the road. I mean, we just could not have planned this uh, better. Now, I want to come back to the text because I want to connect to this a little bit because this is the part that's really important. Um, the important thing that Paul mentions here is that, is that we're one, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God. You see, it doesn't matter what building we meet in. We worship Jesus. We follow Jesus. And we just go wherever it is that he's leading us to go. Um, now, my word of caution to you, my word of caution is this. These are the moments that the enemy loves to have a field day with believers and mess with us and cause us to make really bad choices. I remember when we were meeting in the movie theater, those of you that, you know, go back that far. Um, I once talked to a guy who stopped attending our church because the service times changed by 15 minutes. And it was no longer convenient for him. And I said, oh, you know, do you, do you work on Sunday? He goes, no, I just have a lot to do. So I just can't, I, I can't make this new time. And I said, oh, all right. So he told me it didn't work for him. And um, so you might think that he just found another church to go to. Um, well, I saw him a couple months after that. And I said, so, hey, did you find a, uh, a church that met your narrow window of availability? You know, and he said, uh, and here's what he said. No, no, I'm just not really doing anything. Now, just think about that for a minute, right? Um, like what? You, you, so you're just now doing nothing. So you were growing, you were watching God work in your life, and you went from that to now nothing, be over 15 minutes. And um, and, and here's what. Listen, and the, and the reason I bring this up is because these are not decisions that are inspired by God. They're decisions that are influenced by the enemy. Because listen, I can promise you this: there's you know. Satan does not want you to go to church here or anywhere else. Um, he'd rather you just stay home and watch Meet the Press or something, you know, because, um, you know, because that's, you know, finding out how the government's doing will really uplift your day. Um, and, uh, and, and listen, and, and, the, and the question is, and here's the thing that's really important, if we want to put this really into perspective, you and I could get on an airplane this afternoon and fly across the world to a place where it is illegal to be a Christian. It is illegal to meet in a church. Um, it is not legal to own or carry a Bible. It is not legal to talk to someone about the fact that you're a Christian. And if you were to tell them, so, hey, are you going to make the move at Calvary? Well, you know, I do have to drive 10 minutes to go. You know what they would say? Can I switch with you? Because here they put me in jail if I'm a Christian. But there, apparently, all you have to do is drive 10 minutes in an air-conditioned car and listen to some worship music while you do it because can we switch and, and and see now i think it kind of puts it into a little bit of of perspective um because there are people that really are suffering for the cause of jesus it makes driving 10 minutes not that big of a deal so i say that all to you to say don't let satan rip you off and not cause you to grow spiritually just for um something that might seem you know like a a, a minor uh inconvenience but listen, in here, oh, by the way, let me do this. This is uh, on the back of your connection card. Um, you're going to see on the very bottom, it says, my next step is, and it says, making the move to Miramar. If you, if you say, I'm doing it, I'm, I'm going to make the move to Miramar, I want, would you check that box off so that we know that, hey, you're, 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 that, we're, we're in this to, that we're in this together? Um, and that way, um, it'll... Not only will it, will, it, will it help us know that, but he, this is where the rubber meets the road in, 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 in this message. Is that, um, are we going to, you know, what are we going to do with what we've heard? We're either going to stagnate because things are changing or we're going to take a step and walk into the future. Because here's what happens sometimes is that we tend, tend to let the past keep us from making the decisions that will change our future. Either past mistakes that we've made or the, you know, the good old days that we didn't want to end. And, um, and that's why some people, you, you know, we all know that guy, the guy who, like, even though he graduated from high school 20 years ago, he's still living like it's high school. He's still living his Hialeah High class of 82 jacket. You know what I mean? Like, what's up, 82? You know what I mean? And, like, you know what I mean? Like, no, nobody has the heart to tell him, like, dude, high school is over and you're bald. I mean, it's time to move on. You know what I mean? And, uh, and, 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 and the thing is this, is that um, sometimes we try to spend our lives either keeping things from changing or trying to change the past that's already happened. And listen, you can't do either. It's happened. It's gone. It's done. And these are the things that shape who we are. 
Listen, there are things that have happened in your life that have shaped who you are, and you cannot change them. There are things that have happened in my life that have shaped who I am, and I cannot change them. Um, I, I love the show The Brady Bunch. It's one of my favorite shows ever. Um, and, and I'm telling you, every time I, The Brady Bunch comes on, my world stops. Um, that's why my wife doesn't like it when I turn on, like, uh, you know, like the, the, whatever that other Nickelodeon channel is that shows The Brady Bunch. I forget the name of it. And, um, but, you know, so whenever she sees it, she realizes, like, you know, if she hears, like, the you know, like the little interlude music, she knows, like, oh, boy, here we go, 45 minutes. And, uh, and, and, and the thing is, because, you know, I grew up in a kind of insane in home environment when I was a kid, and I would watch the Brady Bunch wishing that that was what I grew up in, you know. And, um, and it, just, you know, it begins to shape you. Like, you know, I wanted the Brady Bunch. I got Kepasa USA. And uh, it's just not, it's not what I wanted, but it's what I got. And you can spend your life, you know, you can spend your life trying to change that. And I'm pro- I can promise you it's not going to change. Um, but here's what you can do. All we can do is walk and take steps to create a better future. Uh, when my wife and I go out on a date and someone's watching the kids, um, sometimes we'll just go somewhere and just walk. And it's not about going anywhere or being somewhere. It's just about walking and talking. And, um, and some of the best conversations we've ever had and some of the biggest decisions that we've ever made have come when we were just walking. And I want to tell you that it's not about getting there or being there or somewhere else. It's about just walking and understanding what God is doing in our lives right now. Um, and the same thing is true in your relationship with God. Is that people, listen, are obsessed with getting there. When thinking that joy and fulfillment are somewhere else. But here's what we need to, what we need to learn about our relationship with God. Is that right here, right now with Him is what we need. Right here, right now with Him is where He's going to show us the next step to take. Right here, right now with Him is where we're going to grow in our relationship with Him as we just keep taking steps together. Let's pray. And God, we want to thank You for the fact that You are continually leading us and directing us and guiding us. And Lord, our prayer and our hope is that You would uh, continue to work in us. Continue to lead us, this move that's happening, these changes that are happening. Lord, we know that it's all part of your plan. None of this caught you by surprise, but instead, you have a great plan for us as a people. A great great plan for us individually, and we look forward to seeing it play out as we just continue to take the next step with you. In Jesus' name, amen.